You may be seated. Our sermon text today is Psalm 61. We've had a, uh, a nice time going through the Psalms over the last few weeks, and we're going to continue that. Normally, the plan was to kind of do that during the summer. We got a late start on it because of the sermon series that I was on before. And so we're going to go a little bit into the fall with the Psalms. They've been a real blessing to my soul, and I hope to yours as well. We look today to the 61st Psalm. Before we do, though, let's ask God for his blessing on our time in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you specifically for the Psalms. What a, what a blessing that they are to us and that they speak to every part of life. For the times when we are joyful, they give us words to express our heart. For the times when we are awed by your majesty, again, the words are given to us in the psalm. They give us words to express when we are scared, when we are lonely, when we are hurting, when we are lost. No matter what the situation, you have given us in your word direction for us. And so we turn to the Psalms, and we do so thankfully. But we do so knowing that, that left to our own devices, left to our own abilities, left to our own wisdom and knowledge, we would be unable to understand your truth with it even lying bare before us. So we ask that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a mind to comprehend your truth, and even more so a heart in which it might be planted that it might give full flower to the life that you would have us live. So we ask it in the name of the one who lived that perfect life and died an atoning death, that we might even know you. We thank you in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here now as I read from Psalm 61, this is the inspired word of God. <clears throat> Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O oh God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. 
Have you ever had that dream, you know the one, where you find yourself in some sort of mortal danger? Maybe it is someone or something pursuing you. Maybe it is some, some kind of unforeseen trap that you've fallen into. There's, there's some danger that is upon you and, and you know you can't get away and you need help. And so you go to cry out for help. You go to, go to scream, help! But what comes out instead is You ever had that dream? I've had that dream many times. And you're trying to scream for help, and nothing comes out. There's no words behind your desire or fulfilling your desire to seek for help. There you are in dire straits, no one to help you, no way to alert anyone to your peril. Sometimes, though, it's not a dream, is it? Sometimes it's a very real situation sometimes you find yourself maybe not in physical danger but in emotional peril or spiritual peril or just an overwhelming sense of gloom and there are no words that you can express to alert anyone of the need that you have for help you You can't find any way to express the longing you have to be delivered from the deep darkness in which you find yourself. That is where David was when he wrote this psalm. And yet he knew that there was one to whom he could speak. There was one to whom he could address his thoughts, one that he could could speak to, and he knew he would find deliverance. And that one, of course, is the Lord. He knew he was in trouble, and couldn't save himself. But he knew he could turn to God and find salvation. And ultimately, he knew that there was a way that his life must be lived in light of those first two facts. So first of all, we see the fact that he knew he was in trouble and couldn't save himself. It was a a pressing need. We don't know exactly the historical background behind this like many of the other psalms some of them do tell us what exactly they speak to which situation but but in david's life there were many troubles he had many difficulties he had the the crushing weight of being the king over god's people that in and of itself would be a great trial even if things were going well of course they didn't always go well even before he assumed the mantle of the throne He was pursued by Saul, even to the point of nearly being killed. After becoming king, he he had all kinds of trials, trials where he was, as Randy mentioned before, his own worst enemy, where his sin caused him great trial and difficulty and sorrow and pain. There was also many a time when outsiders came against him, whether it be through wars fought or whether it be even within his own household as children of his own rose up against him in rebellion, again seeking to dethrone him, even kill him. 
He had all kinds of troubles that he faced, and this could have been any one of them, perhaps all of them, in which he responded like this, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Notice how here he heaps these terms one on top of each other. My cry, my prayer, my call, one upon another upon another. The idea he is he's expressing the urgency of his plea before God. You know, this is no small thing. Sometimes we, we pray about all kinds of things. I hope we pray about all kinds of things. Sometimes we have just kind of what might be uh, uh, what we'd call prayers of praise and thanksgiving, where we just worship God. Lord, you, you are holy, and we worship him for his holiness. Lord, you are, you are mighty, and we worship him for his might and his greatness. Or, or even we thank him for the things that he has done for us. Lord, thank you so much for, for the blessings that you have showered upon my life. They're so undeserved, and I'm I'm thankful for them. So we have prayers of praise and prayers of, of thanksgiving. We, we also might have prayers of confession and repentance. We include that in our service every week because that's an important part of our prayer life. Right? That, that's part of our, our devotional life with God ought to be times of confession and repentance. That, that's why it's part of our service each week. It's because, because we want to model that so that all of our life might, might be in the shape of the gospel. We might have a, a, a cruciform-shaped life, shaped like the cross, where, where we realize that God is holy and we are not, and we come before him and realize that our great need is for forgiveness of our sins. That we cannot come before him rightly and observe him face to face because he is holy and we are not. That's what the whole point was with, with Moses coming before God. He says, God, I, I want to see you. I want to behold your glory. And Moses says to him, silly man, you can't do that. If you were to behold my glory, if you were to really see me in all of my glory, you would just be struck dead. You you could not behold my glory. So, so what I'll do for you is, is I will pass by and I will, I will place you in the cleft of a rock. I, I have this rock and I will, I will hide you inside of that rock so that I might be able to pass by and you might be able to observe me, you might be able to behold me, you might be able to survive me because you're no longer depending upon your own righteousness. But you are protected inside of the rock who has been cleft for you. Inside of the rock that has been broken apart for you. Inside of the rock that you might be hidden there. And then and only then can I come before you and you survive. And so... So we need to confess our sins. We need to repent of our sins. We need to turn from our sins. And we find 
holiness in Christ Jesus. And so we thank God for, for, for the Lord. We thank God for, for Jesus. We ought to thank God for what he has done for us in his grace time and time again. But our prayers might be other things. They might be ordinary, everyday prayers, right? Just, just Lord, be with me. Be with me in all I do today, Lord. I just ask that each step I take, you might guide me and lead me. Right, just an ordinary prayer like that. We might pray when we wake up in the morning or when we go to bed at night. Lord, just be with me and keep me as I sleep and lead me throughout the day. Or before we say a meal, we pray a prayer of thanksgiving and ask the Lord to nourish our body with the food that we're about to receive and things like that. But, but there are, are sometimes that our prayers are more passionate, more heartfelt, more urgent than that aren't there right there are times where where perhaps we have a loved one who is lying on an operating table and there is a surgeon who's performing a procedure on them and depending how the surgery goes it will mean either life or death prayers that we pray in that moment aren't quite the same prayers, are they, as, you know, bless my food, Lord, amen. Right? There's a deeper level of passion, a deeper level of urgency that we have in those moments. And that's where David was. Right? He says it in verse 2. He says, says that I pray this way when my heart is faint. David feels tired he feels wearied he feels broken he feels the world is is crashing down upon him and this is how life is in a broken world right i hope that we have learned that much by now whether it be from our study in the first chapters of genesis or or our study through the book of ecclesiastes or our study of the world that we see every day, right? We should know that this is a broken world. It is a broken world, and it is constantly crashing down upon us. And we are, we are injured and hurt and worried and put upon by this broken world. And, and when the world is broken, we need to know that we can cry out to God. We can cry out to God and he will hear our prayers. But David's not just lamenting the brokenness of the world. He's, he's lamenting the fact that he feels utterly alone. Notice what he says in verse 2 here. He says, says, from the end of the earth I call to you. The idea is that he is, he is totally separated. He's at the end of the earth. Now it's not literally the end of the earth, right? Because first of all, there is no place that actually is the end of the earth, right? So that, that's kind of the first clue that he is speaking in a sense that, that doesn't really mean the end of the earth. Perhaps he's speaking of the military campaigns that took him to far off distant lands. And he was far from home and he just says, Lord, I, I cry from the end of the earth. Or perhaps he, he just feels like that. Sometimes we can feel like that, right? We can feel so isolated, so 
lonely, so on our own that it feels like we are off on the end of the earth, left apart from everyone, and there is no one there for us. It can feel like that at times. Or perhaps another way to see it is, is the word there that's used to translate uh, to the earth could also mean the land, right? We have kind of the same idea in English, don't we, where sometimes we use the word earth to mean the planet, and sometimes we mean, you know, dirt, right? We dug up the earth. Um, if it means that, if it means the land, perhaps what he's saying is, is I'm at the end of the land, that is the land of Israel, the land over which he is king. Perhaps that's, that's what the reality is. There, there are times in his life, such as when he is being pursued by Absalom, where that certainly could be uh, a fitting description of where he was as he was distant, he was away from Jerusalem. Regardless of which way we see it, the reality is this for us. We should realize that, that there is a sense in which this is how life should always feel for us in this broken world. We are those who live in a foreign land. We are those who are, are at the end of the earth, as it were. Fourth century church father John Chrysostom said it this way. He said, I am a Christian. And he who answers thus has declared everything at once. His country, profession, family. The believer belongs to no city on earth, but to the heavenly Jerusalem. You see, once we realize that our citizenship is of heaven, then we come to see that wherever we are, on earth, we are, in a sense, far away from home. We are, we are distant from where we long to be, from where our hearts cry out to be. Derek Kidner said this, he said, The Old Testament abounds in examples of men who trusted God when far from home, where all have seemed alien and precarious, and where other gods ostensibly held sway. That's where we live. That's where we live today. We live in a world where gods other than the God who truly is seem to hold sway. Where gods other than the God who truly is seem to dictate life. Where gods other than the God who truly is are worshipped and elevated and exalted by our culture. And we can be left to feel lonely. We can be left to feel isolated in such a world. But see, that's the beauty of the church. The church is this, this outpost in foreign lands. It is an embassy on foreign soil where we can retreat, not just to the building, but rather to the, the body, to the people. We can, we can retreat to one another. We can gather together. We can encourage one another. We can build one another up. We can, we can push one another toward holiness. We can come alongside one another. We can remind one another that we are indeed one body, that we have one spirit that dwells within us, and that's really one of the one of the wonderful things about the Lord's table 
right? It reminds us of this fact that we are, we are to commune not only with God, but with one another. That it, it binds us together. We share in that common union with Christ. And so it's not just our, our emotional loneliness that is battled in this, that is fought in this. It is our very real sense that we are not alone in our battle with Satan and with sin and with death. If we were on our own, we would have every reason to be fearful, but we are not. There is one who is with us always, and we can be strengthened by him. And he provides us with this immediate solution. He, right? David knew that he could turn to God for salvation. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That's the key to this passage. It's the key to all of life. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. What does he mean? Well, I mean, some people would say it. He's talking about military strategy here probably, right? You know, you want to get the high ground because if you have the high ground, that's, that's a, a beneficial place to be. It's always, you know, even kids who have played King of the Hill know that, right? It's, it's, it's easier to maintain the high ground than it is to try to gain the high ground. So, so put me there, Lord, and then I'll be in a position. I don't think that's exactly what he's talking about. Perhaps more, some people suggest, he's, he's referring to Mount Zion back in, in Jerusalem, his his home where he dwelt and where one day the temple would be built and, and God would dwell there and perhaps there's a little bit of that, but others suggest, no, what he's talking about is, is lead me to the higher ground where I can see things. Because sometimes in life, the reality is we don't understand what God is doing. We look at our life and it just looks like a mess. And if we could just be taken to a higher perspective and be able to look down, be like, oh, I see it now. So, so what he's actually calling to here, some suggest, is perhaps just, just this idea of, Lord, give me faith. Give me eyes to see what you are doing. Hel help me to trust in you more and more. I, I think perhaps maybe the reality of what is happening is all these things brought together in one. All these things brought together in one. And the reality of the gospel, who Jesus Christ is, because he is all those things and more. What is it that Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16? They came into Caesarea Philippi, and, and he asked them, who are the people saying I am? And they responded, some, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others are saying that you are Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, asking them a question, asking them not just any question, but really an important question, really, the most important question he would ever ask them. And frankly, the most important question that any of you will ever have to answer as well. This is the question. He said, but who do you say that I am? At the end of the day, that is the most important question you will ever answer. Who do you say Jesus who do you understand Jesus to be? Well, Simon Peter responded, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter. And, and 
the word there that's translated as Peter, actually it, it, it means rock, right? So I, I wonder sometimes if we wouldn't be better off, instead of calling Peter, Peter, if we called him Rocky, you know, if that was his name. Because it would kind of convey that, right? And Jesus said, you are Rocky. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What rock is he talking about? He's talking about the rock of, of the apostolic profession that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the Son of God. That he is God in the flesh. He has come in perfect holiness. And he has died for our sins. He is, he is the one who is, is perfect in every way and yet has given himself as the Lamb of God. Right? Because if Jesus is just a good teacher, then the church will fall. If Jesus is just a good example, then the church will fall. But Jesus is not just a good teacher. He is not just a good example. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so it is in him that we can be hidden. Just as Moses was hidden in the cleft of that rock, so too we can be hidden in Christ Jesus, who is the rock who was cleft for us. And hidden in him, we can now know God. We can now come before God. We can come before God and have forgiveness for our sins instead of judgment for our sins. We can come before God as children and not as enemies. We can come before God as those who have been redeemed as opposed to those who will forever be damned. Because Jesus himself is the rock. Ultimately, it is not our faith that is our refuge. It is the object of our faith that is our refuge. It's not that we believe, but rather in whom we believe. Or put, put another way, there is no such thing as saving faith that is placed in one who is not able to save. You see, we're saved not because our faith is strong, but because our Savior is. He is the rock of ages. And David knows that. David is confident that his Savior will use his great strength on his behalf. Why? Because David recalls that God has been faithful to him in the past, and he finds comfort and encouragement in this. This is a great exercise for us always, to turn back to the Word of God and to see how God has worked faithfully in the past for his people through his mighty works. David says it in verse 3, For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. We, we open up the service with Psalm 46, right? And then saying, A mighty fortress is our God, a, a bulwark never failing. Right? He is our, our strong tower, literally our tower of strength. We use that phrase sometimes, don't we? I, I was in a terrible situation. It was so hard. I didn't know what I could do, but he was a real tower of strength for me. That is God. He is that tower of strength. That one to whom you can retreat. That one who will give you strength to persevere. Who's going to give you grace to be able to stand up under trials that you would not be able to stand up under otherwise. David says to God, you have been my tower of strength. 
Right? We need to remember this. We need to remember this. We need to preach this to ourselves day by day by day. That it is in Christ Jesus that we find strength. Not in our own efforts. It is in our weakness that he is strong. And so we need to dwell with him. We need to be close to him. That's what David says, let me dwell in your tent forever. What is his prayer in Psalm 51 when he's been caught in his sin with Bathsheba and so he comes repenting of that sin, confessing it, turning away, and pleading with God, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He says, he says, let me dwell with you still because that's what he longs for more than anything else, to dwell with the Lord. He wants to dwell in his tent, he says here. He, he wants to be close to him. He wants to be nearby him. Let me take refuge, he says, under the shelter of your wings. It's a common injury imagery throughout the Psalms. The idea of a mother hen pulling her chicks in close under her wings that they might be nearby, warm and safe and confident, not worried, knowing that where they are is right and safe. That is the imagery that David uses here of, of God. He wants to take shelter, take refuge under the shelter of his wings and and it's a beautiful thing. Do you see the progression that happens in his prayer up to this point? He starts off, he says, says, I'm in trouble. I'm at the ends of the earth. I'm all by myself. Lord, just, just put me on the rock that's higher than, higher than I. Just, just, just help me out that way, right? Is this inanimate object that just happens to be there, put me on that rock. On second thought, on second thought, he says, no, actually, put me in a strong tower, you know, that, that's been built specifically for progression and, and fortitude and strength and, and, and it's more purposeful and intentional than, than that rock. Actually, now that I think about it, Lord, even more than that, bring me into your tent so that I can be in your house near you. But that's not enough either, Lord. Let me get close to you. Pull me into your breast. Let me be safe under your wings. It's a picture of the Christian walk, is it not? We just want to get closer and closer and closer to God. That should be our heart's desire. Not because, not because it's the right thing and we have to tick off some, some check marks here on, on what we have to do. No, not, not because of that, but because we have seen his glory. We have seen his grace we have seen his goodness and in Christ Jesus all of these have been made manifestly present to us and applied to us and and we realize just how wonderfully blessed we've been and we just long to be close to God and so that's why we come to worship him together we come to worship him not because we get we get Jesus points for being here but because we have to worship. Not in the sense of we have to or else, but in the sense that we have to and that I can't help it. I have to be there. That's the point. That's, that's the sense. That's what David's getting at. 
And he remembers God's faithfulness. Much quicker now through the rest of the psalm, he remembers his faithfulness. He says, you, O God, have heard my vows. He knows that God is faithful to hear our prayers and to receive our worship when we come rightly before him. Right? Jesus says to pray in his name. That's not just you know, a matter of praying all the prayers I want to pray for God to give me all the things I want to give me and then I put a Jesus stamp on the end of it. No, it's, it's praying in his name, speaking in his name as his ambassadors, right? It's like if you came to a foreign ruler and just said to him, hey, uh, I'm here to negotiate a treaty with you in the name of the President of the United States. Like if you're not really coming on behalf of the President of the United States, you have no authority to do that. But if he sent you, and you really are speaking his will, then you do have authority to do that. That's the point of praying in Jesus' name. It's, it's, it's conveying Jesus' wishes. And so that's what we do. We, we, we worship him in that way. We pray in that way. We remember the promises of God. You have given me a heritage, David writes. Of those who fear your name, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. This is fulfilled, of course, through Christ Jesus. Right? That, that is where the, the fulfillment comes of this, that, that the throne of David was established and lasted forever and ever and ever, because that is the throne upon which Jesus, his son, would reign. And so verse 7, may he be enthroned forever before God, appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. It finds its fullness in Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We worship him as our king. And so what is the Christian response? Verse 8, so will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. We sing praises to his name. We worship God we worship Christ Jesus. We do it corporately here together for sure, but even in life in general, we should live lives of worship. Our lives should be lived to the glory of God in all that we do, not as a perfunctory duty, but in response to the great grace that's been shown to us. We develop this heart, or, or perhaps better put, God gives us this heart as we look to the cross. Right? As we look to the cross, for it is there that we see the mercy of God that makes enemies into adopted children. We look to the cross because it's there that we see uh, the holiness of God that refuses to budge even one inch on sin. We look to the cross because it's there that we see a love of God that refuses to allow even one of his own to be left behind. We look to the cross because it is there that our sins put his son to death. We look to the cross because it's there that his son said, 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. So we look to the, to the cross, to the, the finished work of Jesus, and we see his salvation. We see his salvation, and in light of the cross, we see the inauguration of his kingdom, and we look forward to the consummation of his kingdom when all things will be made right. And so today we come to the table. We come to the table joined by a, a common confession. In one body, with one spirit, with one Lord, and one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, we come together no longer alone, no longer lonely, no longer off at the ends of the earth by ourselves, but rather bound together as one in Christ Jesus. In your bulletin, you'll see the words of the Apostles' Creed printed. Whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper, we, we proclaim these words as a means of professing our common faith. Not just our common faith one with another, but our common faith with all who have trusted in Christ Jesus in ages past. And so we, we share these words together now. Would you read with me the words of the Apostles' Creed, again printed in your bulletin. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Apostle Paul speaking to the church, speaking to those who held to that confession, the confession that believes in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the confession that believes that Jesus has died for our sins, was buried and rose from the dead and ascended on high, that confession that believes he will return one day, but for now he has given us his Spirit that his spirit might dwell in us as we look forward to that day of resurrection and life everlasting. Speaking to those who believe these things, the Apostle Paul said, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we, we thank you for this great gift of the Lord's Supper. We thank you that you give it to us that we might actually feel with our fingers and taste with our tongue that we might have all our senses incorporated and that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. We pray that you would help us to trust in you more and more. We pray that through this time of partaking of this feast, which is an appetizer of the wedding feast of the Lamb, that we might have our faith strengthened and that we might see you better and love you more. We pray it in Jesus' name. Our Lord is with us always. And what a beautiful gift that is to have his presence with us each and every day, but in a special way. In the Lord's Supper, he has given us his body. And to all who trust in him alone for their salvation, forsaking their own works and looking only to his, he says, take, eat, this is my body. It is a wonderful thing that he has shed his blood for us. Each of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each of us has failed to live the holy life that he has called us to, but he has, through his own grace, decided to wash us clean of our sin. He does so through his blood spilled for us. And he tells us that this cup is the new covenant that is in his blood, that we should therefore drink it in remembrance of him. So to all who trust in Christ alone for salvation, drink as he commands. We come to the table somber. We come to the table realizing that it is a great sacrifice that has been made for us. We come to the table proclaiming the Lord's death, which is a sad thing. Nobody looks forward to funerals. But there is a beautiful thing with Christ Jesus in that though he died, he rose again. And he lives forevermore. And he shall return and so there is a sense in which we proclaim his death joyfully and we sing together now hymn number 196 at the lamb's high feast we sing would you rise please <laughs> 